Welcome to this month's science fiction double feature. In this episode, we'll talk about The Interminables with author Paige Orwin and The History of Magic with Professor Frank Klassen. Interminables was one of my favourite books this year. I remember picking it off the bookshelf and almost not buying it. What a sad alternate future that would have been. The book takes place a little way in the future, after the world is devastated by an all-powerful magician. The two main characters are a magician named Edmund and the conceptual ghost of World War I named Istvan. We'll explain this a little later. I talked to the author about the inspiration for the book, the characters, and her views on magic. But let's hear how Paige describes the plot of The Interminables. Well, I guess the, the best way I've come up with to describe it is it's, it's basically a, a buddy cop story in a book. There's a magic apocalypse and you have these two buddy cop characters that need to figure out kind of exactly um, what went down at the end of the world, pretty much. And it's just about their friendship and so on. There's a guy who steals time, the other one's a ghost. It's... That's kind of the basic premise. I've read online as well that you kind of started it because a game you played online closed down. So could you explain what that game was about? How does it relate to the book you wrote? Well, the game itself was uh, City of Heroes, and it was one of the you know older guard of uh, MMOs. It was I think it was like World of Warcraft vintage. Like it was that old. It was around for like ten years. I didn't play it that long, but you know, but it wasn't going to win any awards and like you know you know, super cutting edge or anything, but the main thing that it did that I don't know that most others ever did was they gave you a little box where you could write what the character that you built was and what their deal was. So, and because it was a superhero game, it had a lot of customization in it. So, you know, everyone looked different from everyone else, and they gave you a box to write a character bio- biography and that then anyone could see. People kind of just took advantage of that and made all kinds of interesting characters and kind of, you know, run around and do that. And you're like, oh, that's really neat. And you, people would, you know, you'd be compliments on like, if you had a really cool biography or a cool idea, then people would be like, oh, that's, you know, that's really cool. So it was kind of a big venue for creativity. And both of the book characters originally were built for that. And so actually originally, uh, Isvan was my character that I came up with, and actually uh, Edmund originally belonged to someone else, and I got the permission to use him. So, I mean, obviously it's changed a little bit, but there, there's a couple characters in the book that also came from different interesting characters that I ran across, and it's like, oh, well, can, can I use these like uh, when the game went down, because otherwise they would have just been lost forever, and that seemed a shame. So was it mostly the characters that you brought across, or was there something about the kind of world that was also brought over into the book? No, it's pretty much just the characters um, there are small bits and pieces that made it across. For example, there was um, an in-game organization called the Midnighters, which was like, you know, the that was where the, like, the occultists and stuff hung out, and Edmund was connected to those. So I, there kind of had to be an analog of it in the book, or else I didn't know what he belonged to, but just kind of very broad strokes things. Some of it made it in, the vast majority didn't. The game's assumed setting was, you know, just kind of modern-day superheroics kind of thing with all the ridiculous tropes that can be expected and you know of course you don't want to copyright anything and i wanted to kind of do my own stuff so most of it isn't it's it's completely different so one of the things that i really admired about the book was how it kind of interwove real life issues into kind of an unreal world 
So uh, the one example is kind of Edmund's PTSD. How did you how did you approach that? Did you always want the characters to be like that, or did did it evolve as you wrote the book? Um, originally in the game, it was determined that he had he already had kind of a history set down by the time I got to use him, and then I kind of expanded on it because it's it's different when you have something that is in a book versus live action things. So it's a bit easier to go into depth and um, things like that when you actually have it written down. Um, rather than people just improvising stuff on the spot. So it was basically just, okay, well, this is kind of an established thing, and now how do I, uh, I mean, how do I do it justice? How do I, you know, kind of extrapolate how this would work and kind of what would be more off-scene things in a live-action environment? Like, you don't usually see people just th- at their house. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it was almost always in a, you know, a very social venue, and so it's like, okay, well, what's this guy like when he's alone? What's it like when you know, just kind of different circumstances that the character would have never run into that is like, okay, well, now that he's in the book, how would this affect the way he goes about things? So it was already there. It was just figuring out how to how to portray it. I just admired how it was done because uh, occasionally I have read books where it feels a bit packed in, I guess, but this really seemed like a part of his life in a way that I hadn't seen very much before. It was really important to me, important to, me to make sure that it seemed you know, like a real thing. I mean, it's a real thing, so it's kind of, why wouldn't you work on making it be real? <laughs> well, I really, really love Istvan as a character, and not just kind of his personality and how he interacted with everyone, but like what he actually was. Uh, first of all, I guess, kind of explain what he was, and then, uh, again, I guess, if this was part of uh, the world of City of Heroes, is was, was that character evolved as well? He originally wasn't built for the game. He was for a previous... Thing. So he's actually an older character. He's been around for, I think, two or three years longer. And so his original iteration actually was he was built essentially by committee um, as a villain in a uh, play-by-post foreign thing. So and, and we decided he was going to be Hungarian because uh, like German was too, the too obvious go-to for like, you know, villainous uh, Eastern European characters. So it's like, okay, we have to do something that sort of um, and so it's kind of like, well, that's not a real, that's not a very uh, auspicious start. He was just kind of this mad doctor character who happened to be a ghost because that seemed cool. Then later, once I was, you know, messing around with the game and everything, uh, I decided, well, you know, let's bring him in. Um, just, just because mostly it was just kind of a lark and he ended up running into all, you know, different people. And then kind of over time, um, um, a lot of the edges got, you know, worn off and, um, he started developing in much more interesting directions, and it became kind of his own character. So he essentially did kind of a 180 over the time from when he started uh, interacting with Edmund as a character, and then it kind of like flipped, flipped around, and he kind of turned into his own thing. And the whole thing with being a, a conceptual representative of the First World War um, was one of the later game developments. And it just kind of came about because it's like, well, okay, you, you can have you know, ghosts of people, but why can't you have ghosts of anything else? Or, you know, you can have, you know, memories of objects, but you you can also have, like, these big historical things. And he was always kind of this strange spirit of some sort. Like, he wasn't a very good ghost, uh, really. Like, he, well, he wasn't very good at, he wasn't very good at ghost things. And it's like, well, he's clearly something strange. So I just kind of came up with that, and that's that's where it went from there. Um, and then after that, that actually gave him a lot of the, the depth that he has now is just the, the different competing feelings, I guess, that he has about, you know, war and fighting and violence and being a doctor and all that stuff, so. So the other thing I really liked, because I study history as well, is uh, all the kind of, I guess, history brought into it. So I cannot pronounce her name, but Shostak, the original 
wizards, magician that starts off the war. Did you kind of base her on any historical kind of things, or or was it purely just you you made it up, so to speak? Well, well, I, I needed someone to destroy the world, and originally the sort of vague notion for it was it was pulled off a event that one of the other people in the the group I was playing with they they did, they did a, a storyline that involved you know these like this family of immortals and stuff and they kind of manipulated things, and they're originally. Uh, I don't want to say Vikings, but like that kind of thing, like Northern people. And then it's like, well, that, that gets done a lot. And, you know, those, obviously there's a, there's a lot more to the world than, than the Vikings. So I was like, okay, well, let's, are there any ancient cultures you don't see too much that are, that are interesting that uh, people just haven't really heard about? Cause I wanted her to be kind of be this kind of this very, very old force that people would not be familiar with at all. And it's kind of kind of like okay, you know, you get a lot of popular culture like Greek things, you get a lot of popular like Egyptian things, um, and so I went and I looked at you know parts of the Middle East because I had you know decided it's like the it's people from there in the Dark Ages and it ended up defeating her uh, one of the caliphates and it's like okay so there were there were these people called the Scythians, I don't know if they disappeared or they like merged into somewhere else but they're like you you don't see references of them much past a certain date. Then you kind of look at it and it's like, well, they're kind of like, you know, they're nomadic horse peoples. They're kind of, you know, people think of the immediate is, is like Mongolians, but they're from the Middle East and, uh, they were Caucasian and they kind of, and they like marauded around and attacked the Persian Empire and the Greeks and all these different things. So they were kind of, you know, the, the mounted terrors of, of the area and they had some really interesting art and I didn't know much about them. So I kind of, you know, looked at all those things like actually given that she is, you know, a character that destroyed civilization. Um, if having a background as what a nomadic horse warrior seemed like a very interesting tack to take. And of course people don't know what Scythians are. So it's like, well, and then she just will seem to come out of, you know, like, okay, what is she like? And then I don't know, maybe people will go look it up and see that it's kind of an interesting thing to know. So that's where she came from. And as well, uh, the, the kind of destroyer of the war being a woman and there's also other kind of complex and equally powerful women, but the magister and Grace herself. Was that a conscious effort as well? I've slightly become obsessed with representation of women in sci-fi after reading many, many terrible books. So I, I'm, I always pick up on it. A lot of it, yeah. I mean, I thought <laughs> it was kind of like, well, I, ha I have my, my two protagonists are old white guys, so I need to make up for this somehow. Um, although Grace, Grace was already there, so she was kind of a, a done deal, and I needed someone to run, you know, the, the 12th hour, and so it's kind of like, well, okay, I've, ha I've heard Mercedes characterized as kind of being the, you know, the grumpy police sergeant character, at least at first, you know, so she was just kind of, um, you know, I want to, and just an interesting person that you might find, you know, just out of a random sense, it's like, okay, well, you know, I want it to be a woman, I want it to be someone who was not white, because my two main guys are white, and trying to make sure, I guess, that they did both have, I guess, interesting developments in their own stuff going on. And like, especially for Grace, the notion that, you know, she's not, you know, she's not, she's not a prize that is won by the end of the book. She definitely has all of her own, you know, issues or whatever. And then um, in the case of uh, Magister Han, um, the notion that, you know, she is, you know, she's in there because, you know, she's, you know, the person who stopped all this stuff, but then has kind of her own issues. I kind of think of her a little bit. She's kind of the, her relationship with other stuff is kind of the she's a little bit like Dr. Frankenstein, uh, at least in some respects, you know. But I just want to make sure that they had all their own things because I, I want to make sure that I do that. It's it's important. I think it is well, which is again why uh, I really enjoyed the book. 
The other thing I really liked was kind of the, the hands-on magic, I guess, in um, Magister Han as they walk in on her and she's like doing weird things. And uh, um, at the end of the book, I don't want to give it away, but, but Edmund doing thing with this van. Whereas kind of like, you know, Harry Potter, you get like wands and just chanting. Was that, uh, was that part of the world before or do you just kind of like that practical aspect of magic? I kind of wanted to, you know, the, the, the idea that magic is very, it's, it's difficult and it's dangerous. And, you know, that there, there has to be a reason why people don't just use it for everyday things. You know, why, why would this, you know, sort of thing not just end up widespread? Um, you know, how come there's not a lot more wizards than there are? So it's kind of really trying to emphasize the, I guess, like the, the, the occult thing and the, you have to put it together from lots of different pieces that don't make sense and probably won't ever make sense. But I guess just kind of the notion that it's like, oh, it's, this, this stuff is magic. This stuff should not be able to be codified in the same way that science is, or else it wouldn't be magic. You know, so it's kind of just really bringing back that you just don't know all this stuff. And you probably, um, even knowing it is problematic. And as far as wands and things, I knew that that, you know, is a popular thing that's usually associated with it. But I kind of wanted to go for more of the, I guess some people said it's kind of more Lovecraftian almost, where... You know, you kind of you can have the trappings. I'm not saying that people don't necessarily might there might be a wizard of the wand running around out there somewhere. I don't know. And they do use objects. And I did decide that yes, you, you can have um, wards and things, but I wanted it for the most part to be very subtle um, and for people to be very very highly specialized. You know, for example, Edmund doesn't do a lot of different things. He's very very specialized. He just does like these two big things, and then he does a couple of like extra things on the side, but then again, he's considered, you know, kind of one of the, the oldest and more, you know, more powerful of them because he's been around for so long. So I just, I just wanted a very different feel to the magic where it's, you know, this thing. And this is why someone who decided to just use it out in the open ended up destroying things. And, um, you know, this is why it's underground. Again, like rituals and stuff, which were kind of come from religion and the occult and stuff. So it has kind of, I, I feel more similarity to our kind of historical grasp of, of magic, which I found quite interesting. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I remember hearing somewhere that you know, basically, blacksmithing was considered a kind of magic because it's like you have you have to be, know all of these you know kind of secret things to be able to do this this wonderful you know thing. So it's kind of this is something special, and um, I thought it was very interesting. And the idea that you have to dive through a whole lot of you know kind of misinformation and you know historical things, and you have to go through lots of translations, and a lot of it is from all kinds of places and all kinds of people. I just kind of like that because I'm also a historian person so it's kind of like if i'm gonna have magic in it then i want it to be you know kind of the accumulated tricks of you know centuries that it would be so i think there's so many places to explore in this world and like about the war itself or what happens or or the history of uh the 12th hour do you have ideas for a sequel prequel i'm working on a sequel actually <laughs> uh so that's actually that that is in progress right now i'm trying to do nanowrimo with questionable success currently so i need to be faster the second one does kind of gets into more how these different qualities interact with each other. It gets into um, further, like I guess, ramifications of everything being changed so much um, because you have Grace, who's kind of this weird, unique conduit thing. It's kind of like, okay, what's what's their deal? Are there more of them? Well, what are they? There is an instance you go and you see there's another wizard's cabal that they go and visit. You know, just wanting to emphasize that, you know, they're all kind of these very, very different places. So the one that they go is... The, it's in the Midwest that they go to and they operate quite differently. You know, so I guess it's just kind of, it's, it's a geographic, it's a geographical expansion and there's more, I guess, politicking and then it's kind of dealing directly with, um, some of the major 
changes that happen to the main characters as well, because there's some very, very big differences between things just because of decisions that were made. But I mean, a lot of it has to be, I can't, just because of the kind of characters that they are, I can't challenge, I can't challenge them with um, smaller things. It's, it's a Superman dilemma. Like you can't, you can't hurt the guy directly. Like you can't, it just doesn't work. You know, so you have to go after um, problems that can't be solved um, by, you know, lasering them or punching them or whatever. Um, you have to go after, you know, the people that he cares about. You have to go after, um, you know, big things that um, need a lot of people working together to solve. So as I told Paige, one of the things I most enjoyed about the Interminables was the practical magic how the magicians would have to have artifacts or other materials to make the magic work. It got me thinking about what we actually knew about our own history of magic, and who better to talk to than a historian of magic. Frank Plasson is an associate professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan. He studies learned magic in the medieval, late renaissance and reformation periods. So I asked him, what is magic? That is going to vary, I think, a good deal from age to age. And I think that's one of the huge difficulties of talking about magic is we've, you know, for example, we have this conceit that there's been a decline in magic since the medieval period. There certainly has been a decline in medieval types of magic. Uh, but we've also had the birth of all form, all kinds of forms of modern magic. Um, I mean, loosely speaking, we can talk about it as a kind of effort to control uh, the world around us through invisible forces uh, or intangible forces. But it's also a social category. It's also a kind of practice which people like to reject as bad. You know, it's bad religion. Um, it's primitive religion. And so I, I tend to cheat whenever I talk about magic and I stick to either very kind of strict definitions or very loose definitions like the one I gave you or the definitions of the period in which you're working. What are the types of uh, historical records that we have about magic in the period you study? Uh, well, okay, the period I, wor I work on is loosely speaking 13th to 16th century. What took me into the, into the area was that there are a fairly significant number of, of surviving manuscripts of, of magic. I'm particularly interested in illicit forms of magic. In other words, ones that were regarded as explicitly regarded as problematic by uh, intellectual and church authorities. Uh, and there are, depending on the, you know, literally hundreds of manuscripts, and then, you know, more or less depending on the type of magic. So, um, so the evidence that I mostly work with is of manuscript evidence. But there's also evidence from the courts, people who got in trouble with practicing magic at one point or another, um, or were accused of practicing magic even if, even if they patently didn't practice any magic at all. Uh, and then there's the literary representations of magic, right? The, the Merlins of the world and, and or the, the representations of magic in, in uh, you know, medieval literature like the Mabinogion or whatever, that, where you have, again, forms of magic. So there's all kinds of ways that you can get at it. To put into context for people who may not have, you know, seen these manuscripts, are we talking Doctor Strange? Are we talking Harry Potter? Uh, are we talking uh, Gandalf? Uh, or all, all of them together? Um, the material that I work with, if you're asking specifically about the manuscripts, I work, I, the, the, my book Transformations of Magic is principally about two 
streams, which are not entirely separable, but in in terms of the way they were treated, they were. One is what we could loosely call astrological image magic or astrological magic, which mostly comes out, comes into Europe through the Arab, from, from Arab uh, contexts uh, through Spain. And this is the manipulation of celestial spirits through various kinds of means. Uh, the other form, which is, is also related to some forms of Arabic magic and Hebraic magic and, and other forms of ancient magic, is, is spirit conjuring. Uh, and uh, that tends to be more heavily Christianized in its ritual. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the most dubious form is necromancy, which involves the, the conjuring of demons. That's my particular favorite. Uh, but there are also other forms, which are angel magic. Uh, so one of the most significant books of angel magic in the Middle Ages is called the Ars Notoria, and it involves a, a literally a two-year ritual to have the complete knowledge of the arts and sciences infused in the mind of the operator by angels. That would be very useful for exams. Darn right. Uh, an awful lot of work, though. You know, it might be easier to go to school. Some of what you've written, which I was reading uh, today talked about the relationship between religion and magic and that a lot of the people who practiced were also considered themselves religious. How long did that coexist without being like expressly kind of forbidden or was it always forbidden? It's a good question. I mean, I mean, to first off, I mean, I have to say, put my cards to the table straight off and say that I think that the notion of the division between magic and religion is a bogus one and deeply, deeply problematic. But beyond that, I mean, there are clear ideas of what is magic or what isn't magic. Or uh, that being said, uh, in practical terms, the overlap between magical practice in magical practices in the Middle Ages and uh, religious practices are very, very heavy. So that if you were conjuring demons, it required fasting for at least three days prior to it involved abstinence from any sexual activity. It involved going to mass. It involved seeking confession. You had to be a baptized Christian in order to do it. It was not possible otherwise because the demons weren't going to listen to you otherwise. And then when you did it, you were effectively, you, you know, the, the rhetoric of the conjuration is essentially an exorcism, except there's a slight logical leap. Not just cast the demon out. We're going to get it to do something for us. So the, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the two of them. And it's not altogether clear, even in those extreme cases, where people saw the dividing line between the two. I mean, I think they were clear, okay, this is magic and people don't like it. At what point, I'm willing to say, that's religion and that's magic and it's on its own terms. I'm, I'm, I'm not really, because so much of what we do today and so much of what religion is about is about manipulation of, you know, praying for hope the hopes that things will be different. And, um, I know that's exactly the same kind of thing. And even in, even in the modern power of positive thinking stuff, right? If I believe strongly enough that I will get a parking space, it will be there when I go downtown. If I visualize the parking space, um, you know, so whether it's New Age religion, whether it's it's Christianity, we we do engage. We do think about this as a way of manipulating the world, or at least arranging the world in our favor. In that sense, the there's a lot of fussy middle ground. <laughs> uh, I also enjoy that they used crystals to like either capture and is that it was just like 
all the kind of new age stuff, which again didn't exist yet, but you know, smacked together with religion, it was fascinating. There's a, a very one of my colleagues at the University of Amsterdam, Walter Hanegraaff, talks about new age as as a religion. He said it's a modern secular religion. Uh, that's what it is. I'm not sure I'm entirely happy with the idea of it being a secular religion because I think that's a problematic term too. But these are all just you know various forms of religious practice. And if you look at what people do in you know this new age spirituality, it's about sex. It's about relationships, it's about money, it's about influence, and it's about illness or, you know, health and illness. Uh, it's exactly, exactly the same material that makes up, if you look at, say, medieval charms and medieval, uh, you know, popular magic that's practiced by common people in the Middle Ages, it's exactly the same material. There are more charms for toothaches because they don't have ways of dealing with toothaches. There are more charms for dealing with problematic pregnancy or safe delivery and childbirth because that was more risky. But in, in, in the broader terms, it's exactly the same material. I enjoyed as well that um, the practices slightly changed like post-Reformation as well. Are there any of those other kind of interesting divides where you can see a social change that impacted the practice of magic? The, the Reformation is a really interesting period because it's it's a period where we, we commonly think about it as the beginning of the end for magic. The, the term hocus pocus is a corruption of the Latin hocus enum corpus, which means, you know, it's the point when the priest holds the consecrated host aloft after, uh, you know, in the mass and above his head and says hocus enum corpus, this is my body. And so we take hocus corpus and turn it into hocus pocus. So it's an anti-Catholic term. It's a term that's inherently anti-Catholic. So we think of the you know Protestants as this great de you know demystifying kind of religion, um, which you know in the broader terms in broader terms it wasn't really. What actually happens in this period is that magic actually kind of gets separated more, in my estimation, from conventional practices and starts to become something on its own, a kind of thing in its own right. And it's in this period where people say, oh, you know, they have actual texts that, that won't, conjuring demons is like exorcisms. It's suddenly, oh, you want to sell your soul to the devil? Okay, I'm going to tell you how. And we're going to write the contract like this. So you might be able to get out of it, right? So it's completely different kind of magic that we ever saw in the Middle Ages. Suddenly it's its own thing. Suddenly... You know, you're actually, yeah, you're writing this contract with the devil or, um, you know, genuinely diabolic magic is a very modern thing. And there are other forms of it as well. You know, we, we tend to think about magic as much more psychological in the modern period. And I think that begins to happen as well about this time. So I'm assuming just because of the nature of the Reformation and who studied kind of religion and stuff like that, that most magicians would have been male. It's a tricky question. I mean, the clearly there are female magic practitioners, but it is it, the evidence suggests that most of them were actually men. And what we make of this is unclear. Uh, for example, uh, cunning folk, which are sort of lower level practitioners that would be in, in local communities. All the evidence suggests that they were mostly men. Uh, all the evidence from the courts, all the evidence the way they talk about, um, acceptance or rhetorical places where people wanted to denigrate, and then they call them women, but it was basically just because it was a way of denigrating that practice. Uh, but all the evidence suggests they were mostly men. What do we make of this? Is that the mean, maybe, maybe for some reason the men were more likely to end up in court. 
So it's possible the women were just smarter and flew under the radar, uh, which is not the way we think about it, really. I, um, they certainly weren't caught up in witch trials. They tended not to be actually statistically, they tended not to be magic practitioners, real ones. They tended to be false ones. So even there, um, where there are way, way more women accused of practicing magic, nine times out of ten, they weren't actual magic practitioners. Um, so what do we make of this? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a curious struggle. Is there a typical practitioner of magic? What would they look like? What did they do? There's a, there's a terrific study of, of 1980s cultic paganism in, in, uh, in Britain by a woman by the name of Tanya Berman, who now teaches at Stanford. A terrific book. It's an ethnography. And it's just a study of like, who are these people? What are they, you know, what are they doing? And she actually involved herself in all the practices and became an initiate in many of the, in many of the, uh, these organizations. And, and, and it's a very respectful piece. It's really terrific. One of the things she emphasized at the beginning of the book is like, look, you see these people walking down the street, you never know. It's not like they're walking around with pointy hats on or funny robes or carrying wands, right? It's like, this is not what we're talking about here, right? These are every common everyday people. They're civil servants, they're scientists, they're blue collar workers. They're, you know, it's just, it's completely normal in every other way. There's no way of, there's no particular demographic here. Um, and I think it's in, in many respects similar in the, in the medieval period that it, 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 it crosses all of the boundaries the, of the class of classes. Uh, in, in, although there are certainly clear kinds of professional jobs, which are you know, very depending on the class, but it goes right across, whether it's right from, from very, very learned people down to people who have uh, no, no learning at all, uh, who are practicing in local communities and so forth. So it's a, it's a huge variety of, of, of practitioners. We know most, of course, about the people that I talk about, which are because we've got their manuscripts, even if we don't know their names, we you know, know who they were. But uh, they were certainly as ubiquitous then as they are now or as they have been in the intervening years. I, I was really fascinated that, uh, again, in one of your articles, that you'd have people conjuring demons and then in their visions there would be an angel who says, like, you shouldn't listen to the demons because they'll lie to you. Like, which was amazing as, like, I'm just trying to envision someone having a vision and then kind of having an argument with an angel about whether or not to trust a demon. It, did it make any practical difference to people conjuring? Did they go, oh, should I not really listen to demons? I'll only listen to angels now? Or it's just like, whoever I contact, that's that's good enough for me. It's amazing how often that story happens. I mean, it happens with John of Morgie in, in the 14th century. It happens again in the 16th century. We've got conjuring records of, of one Humphrey Gilbert, who was uh, also an explorer and a, and a familiar of Elizabeth's court. And half-brother to Sir Walter Raleigh, and we've got his, we've got records of that he, that are almost certainly of conjuring exercises that he was involved with, his, his brother and, and, uh, and John Davis, who was also a, an explorer and sea captain late in later years. And this was the same thing there. They ran into, the, 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 they're, they're working with, the, they're, in that case, they were working with the scryer. The scryer is speaking for the, whatever appears in the stone, and they're, con, they're conjuring demons. And to try and bring them the ghosts of, of ancient magicians to teach them magic. And, they, and the magicians do come, incidentally, which is quite cool. But then uh, they have the saints showing up saying, oh, wait a second. You know, 
I'm happy to get you this information, but really there's a better way of doing this than going through demons. Don't go through demons. Where's this coming from? Is this coming out of the imagination of the scryer? Well, yes, probably. Um, although it's always really ambiguous. And then they have to create a new magic book. What's quite cool about this, and then the new magic book is created from this interaction with uh, with the spirits. So you do it like this, do it like that. So you write it carefully, write it all down, and, and uh, come up with a new book. I also enjoy the fact that they would deliberately make it obtuse these books that it would, you kind of had to get the lingo essentially to then be able to interpret it, and then contact these other kind of celestial or uncelestial beings. Coming to understand the book was itself a kind of part of the magic process. Yeah, that you had to. In, in this, it was, I find the ritual magic to be most fascinating in this respect because it is kind of it's recursive, right? It's this, this sort of weird spiral that you get into where um, the magic itself leads you into new magic and, and helps you interpret what it is that you're seeing. And so it is a kind of return. You don't necessarily know what you're going to get when you conjure a spirit. And so you've got a list saying, okay, when the spirit appears, ask him who he is, what's his rank, well, you know, what is he capable of, what is the sigil that can, that can control him and so forth. Because you don't know, you know, this is, this is completely crazy um, kind of thing where it's, it's evidently out of control. And what's interesting to me is that falls in line at least with modern studies that talk about visionary experiences, that if you do these practices, things will happen. If you engage in these visualization exercises, if you're doing the kinds of things that they propose that you do, a certain portion of the population will not just imagine they saw demons, you know, they will actually have dissociative experiences that we would associate with schizophrenia, dissociative experiences like visual or auditory hallucinations. We know this. We know this from modern studies, this will happen. Uh, so it's perfectly conceivable that they were there in conversations with something, conversations with themselves, conversation, but it's convincing conversation. And that's kind of fascinating. So where does this magic come from? It's, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the human imagination or somewhere in the human brain. Did the people who practice magic call themselves magicians or is that kind of the modern term that we use and apply backwards? Yes, they did use that term. They did use the term magi or magus. They used the term master uh, or master of the art. They might use the term negromancer. They didn't like necromancer. That was, that was the negative one. That was meant that that was, that was bad magic. But if they wanted to give it a positive twist, they generally used the term negromancer. Um, which loosely means black magic. There's a wonderful book called the, the Sworn Book of Honorius, and in one version of this book, uh, called the London Honorius, there's a, there's a prologue which talks about magicians who, when persecutions uh, started happening against, uh, you know, institutional persecutions against magic in the late Middle Ages, they said, whoa, we got to do something about this. And so they call it a special council of magicians all together to make a decision about what they were doing and how are they going to defend their art and so forth. So um, there they're very explicitly thinking about themselves and referring to themselves as magicians. Presumably there was a council they somehow knew each other. Was Is there any kind of evidence that, just like there was with science, that there was these networks of kind of magicians uh, discussing the latest in magic? 
I, I think so. Yes. I mean, there are there, for example, there are there are fairly clearly networks of magicians in places like in, in particular locations. For example, St. Augustine's of Canterbury. It's a it's a monastic house. Uh, it's fairly clear that they had there was a community of magicians which passed books off from person to person. And it's quite clear from the, from the later period, from the 16th century, that these people knew each other. They communicated. They didn't always like each other. That's also quite clear. And they had differences about how to go about things, but they certainly knew each other. Did they have a theory of magic? Like, what was magic made of? Or was it literally just angels and demons giving them favors? Yeah, absolutely. Something about the medieval period is that they were very much interested in the natural world. They wanted... I mean, we think about the medieval world as a kind of a superstitious period, right? And it's, it's, it's a real false representation. And scholastic philosophers like Thomas Aquinas were very much interested in limiting the scope of the supernatural as much as possible, right? So they are actually saying, okay, what are all the things that could cause this kind of effect? And so, they'll, for example, they'll talk about dreams. And, and Thomas Aquinas, I think, has nine, something like nine, six or nine different kinds of dreams. So they want to reduce it to physical causes. So they definitely had a theory of magic, right? They said this is, and, and, and some of it boiled down to demons, which are, of course, part of the natural world. Right? They're in the Bible. We take them seriously, so they said. So they have to understand them as part of the natural world. They're one of the causes that they, that's, that's there. The medieval period also takes astrology very seriously. They don't like the idea of being able to predict that, that the stars determine the future, because that would limit, you know, the freedom of the divine, the divine, or freedom of God to plan and say how things are going to happen. But they're quite happy to say that the stars influence us, and that's basically taught at the universities. That's part of of uh, medieval medicine, quite simply. And so, and much of the magic is just an extension of this astrological point of view. If there are these influences coming down, they have an effect on us. Well. Are there ways of controlling that? You know, and the idea is, of course, that you know, gold has the power of the sun because it's golden, and that you know, the mercury has the power of mercury because it's it's quick, it, it moves quickly, like the way the, the way the planet does, and that the, the properties of the planet are somehow associated with that, you know, with with that thing, and in, in hidden kinds of ways. And so there are very articulated theories about this. They have, and, which, and they have no trouble with that. They do have trouble with the idea that drawing a, a sigil of Mars or the Sun can have an effect. And that's where it gets problematic as far as they're concerned. Um, they don't believe that that's possible, although some people do. So there's an a Arabic philosopher by the name of Al-Kindi uh, who postulates that magic words, magic symbols that are carved in things, are actually do have the power of do actually do have celestial power in them or can 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 pass on celestial power and so that is a kind of a fantasy at least that gets preserved all the way through the period and people look at that and go wow what if that were true maybe it's true uh, and experiment with that but again in all these circumstances they're thinking about it as part of the natural world and a way of manipulating hidden forces in the natural world is magic closely related to alchemy then? Are they quite distinct or do they merge into get together at a certain point? They're quite different in the Middle Ages in the, in the sense that different people practice them. 
And I mean, there are similar debates about it. I mean, about whether alchemy is possible or not. And the scholastic philosophers aren't altogether sure. They don't agree necessarily on that. But the people who practice them are different. Weirdly enough, that's one of the things that happens in the 16th century is suddenly you get these magic practitioners who are also alchemists. And it's something that I'm working on at this point. I, 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 I'm, and I'm probing the evidence a little bit more because I started seeing this. I don't think I've ever seen this before. Cool. Thank you very much for your time. That was super fun. And that's the end of the first ever science fiction double feature. Thanks to both Paige Orwin and Frank Klassen for their time. You can find links to their work in the show notes. Please share this podcast with your friends if you've enjoyed it, and let me know what other books you think I should cover on future shows. You can find me on Twitter at SillyCock. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. Thanks for listening, and see you next month.